On Wednesday, Bernie Madoff died at the age of 82. He'd been serving a 150-year sentence in federal prison. Madoff is accused of swindling investors out of billions of dollars. The Fed's uncovering a $50 billion Ponzi scheme. Could turn out to be the largest ever swindled by one individual. For this to happen right now is totally off the charts. Madoff was the architect of one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. Thousands of people trusted Madoff with their money, and collectively, they lost billions of dollars. How do you think the Madoff story will be remembered? The greatest con men of our time. But what's really, really amazing is how many people fell for it in the face of many red flags. This one kind of little-known supposed money manager just swindled the savings of individuals, of endowments, of nonprofits, rich people, modest people, just in one fell fraud. That's our colleague Jamie Heller, who covered the Madoff scandal back in 2008. She says that for years, Madoff promised his investors a dream scenario, big, steady returns. And people fell for it. It was basically the attraction of the fund was that it delivered these steady returns, like 8 to 12%. And that's just not the way the markets work. You can't just have such a reliable outcome. It seemed too good to be true, and it was. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, April 16th. Coming up on the show, the legacy of Bernie Madoff and his massive Ponzi scheme. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Bernie Madoff started out as a legitimate businessman. He helped develop technology that digitized the way stocks were traded. He was even the chairman of the NASDAQ stock exchange for a few years. Eventually, he has a stock trading firm in the Lipstick Building in Midtown Manhattan. It's called the Lipstick Building from its shape and color, which is said to resemble the tube of lipstick. Stock trading firms do the mundane work of matching up people who want to buy stocks with people who want to sell them. That's what Madoff's main business was all about. But he also had another operation, investing other people's money. But eventually what evolved was he had two separate businesses in the lipstick building. And one was a legitimate stock trading business on the 19th floor. And then he had this money management firm that was separate on the 17th floor, separate staff, separate floor, except, well, the money was managed, but it wasn't invested. So what was Madoff doing on the 17th floor where the illegal activity was taking place? Like, not much. I mean, he claimed to have this stock option strategy. So people would bring their money to him, and they would think he was investing it. But he wasn't. And he was just 
making up these statements. And then other people in the fund would say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to take my money out. And he would just take money from investor A and give it to investor B. And then he would, you know, take some off for himself. It's not totally clear when Madoff's Ponzi scheme first got started. Madoff has said it dates to the 1990s, but prosecutors have suggested it's been around longer, since the 1970s. Of course, Madoff's clients didn't know about any of this. They just saw reliable returns. And so he attracted a lot of investors. European banks, it was big, what we call feeder funds, big funds that got together clients and part of their sell was we could get you into Madoff. And there were individual investors and there were college endowments and there were nonprofits. And it was just a very, very wide array of investors. Madoff had high profile clients like the actor Kevin Bacon and film director Steven Spielberg as well as the foundation of the Holocaust survivor and Nobel Peace Prize winner Elie Wiesel. Many of Madoff's clients, like him, were Jewish, and Madoff used his status in some Jewish communities to gain trust. And lots of people wanted in on the action, like Howard Siegel. Hello? Hi, Howard? Yes. Yes, hi, this is Ryan Knudsen from The Wall Street Journal. Howard lived in New York and moved in wealthy circles. He was a partner at the consulting firm Deloitte, and by the early 2000s, he was getting ready to retire. How did you first hear about Bernie Madoff? The way it happened was I belonged to a golf club on Long Island. And uh, one day in front of the clubhouse, I was talking to a friend of mine, said I was getting close to retirement, had funds to invest, and was curious about what he was investing in. And he told me he had this guy, he was getting 10% a year on his investments every year. and um, mentioned that it was uh, Bernie Madoff. I said, you mean Peter's brother? Peter Madoff was a member of this golf club. We were friends. We had played golf together and had dinner with our wives together. And uh, the answer was yes, it was Peter's brother. Howard called Peter to ask for help getting into his brother's fund. And Peter said, well, Howard, we're just doing this now for friends of the family and institutional clients. I said, Peter, this is me. And he stuck to his guns and said, uh, we're not accepting other investors at the present time, which was part of Madoff's uh, way that he operated in that he tried to make it appear that it was difficult to get into his investment. Even though Peter rebuffed him, Howard was able to find another way in. An outside investment firm had something called a feeder fund that invested with Madoff, and Howard put his money there. He says eventually he invested 30 to 50% of his money with Madoff. You know, once you got in, you thought you had reached the promised land. Once you got in and started seeing those returns, what kinds of returns were you seeing, and how did it feel? Uh, I was getting 8 to 10% a year, and it felt good. Howard says he did research Madoff before investing, and he did see some red flags. For example, Madoff had been investigated by the SEC at one point, but Howard said nothing came of the probe. Why did you still decide to put your money with him? Although I did a lot of investigating on my own, there were a lot of people that I found out were invested with him. Uh, reputable people, and that believed he was 100% honest. I mean, this was a man who was the chairman of the NASDAQ. Mm -hmm. 
So he had a stellar reputation. One begins to believe that there can't be something wrong with this if all these people are investing in it. Bernie Madoff. I mean, he was this masterful manipulator of human nature. He lived a very affluent lifestyle. He had shares of two jets. He had a penthouse in Manhattan, an oceanfront home in the Hamptons. He had a home in Palm Beach, Florida. He cultivated this mystique that he had this exclusive fund and it was so hard to get in. And that alone was a draw. Like, who wants to be in a club you can get in? The whole point is to have to be rich enough. You have to be rich enough to get into this fund. And he only took certain people and and that alone made it really attractive. So it was considered like a very exclusive club to be in. And then he delivered these smooth returns and you got statements that showed these purported returns. This was Madoff's big appeal. His funds consistently generated annual returns of around 8 to 12%, no matter what the rest of the market was doing. But exactly how Madoff churned out these consistently high returns was always something of a mystery. Madoff said he used an investing technique called a split-strike conversion, which is a real thing. But he kept the details hidden. I mean, I spoke to one investor who was a little suspicious and would call the fund on a Friday afternoon and say, I want to take money out. Like, like big money, like millions of dollars. And on the Monday, the money would be there. And that was the way he like assured people that he was for real because if they made withdrawals, there was money and there was money because money kept coming in. So money was able to come in, so money was able to go out. While that seemed to be enough to assuage most people's fears, during the early 2000s, some people were raising red flags, like Harry Markopoulos, who once worked at a rival firm. There was a whistleblower named Harry Markopoulos, and he literally for years tried to convince the SEC that these returns were too good to be true. I mean, he was one of the people who basically researched that the investment strategy that Mr. Madoff said he supposedly was using just couldn't work at the scale that his investments supposedly were. When Markopoulos tried to model out Madoff's trades on paper, he found that there was no way that the split-strike conversion strategy could ever produce the steady 8 to 12% returns that Madoff was delivering. Some news outlets also raised questions about Madoff, like Barron's, a sister publication of the Wall Street Journal. Why didn't the SEC or anybody listen to these red flags? The SEC went over to Madoff's offices. They did an investigation, but they concluded that it wasn't enforcement worthy. They didn't get to the bottom of it. And basically, a report later concluded that specific complaints and news articles should have raised significant questions about whether Mr. Madoff was trading at all. But they never brought an enforcement action against him. It would take a shock of a much bigger magnitude to finally uncover Madoff's fraud. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, 
whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers. Removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. It was the financial crisis of 2008 that ultimately exposed Madoff's fraud. More bad news on the housing front only made matters worse on Wall Street. Bear Stearns today leading the tumble on Wall Street. The stock plunging 45%. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. The collapse of Lehman Brothers set off a wave of panic on Wall Street. The closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange, the main index, down over 7%. This is the story of the big short, that the housing market had just gotten crazily overheated and started collapsing. Markets were in turmoil and markets were seizing up and markets were collapsing. With the markets in freefall, investors were losing money hand over fist. And the Madoff situation was the culmination where so many other investments had turned that people started turning to their money in Madoff. Madoff's clients started calling, asking to cash out their investments. And Madoff did return money to some people, but before he could return cash to all the clients that wanted it, he ran out of money. He confessed what he had been doing to his two sons, who decided to turn him in. According to the criminal complaint, on Wednesday, here at his Manhattan apartment, Bernie Madoff confessed to his two sons, Andrew and Mark, both senior executives in the company. They turned their father in to the FBI. He was arrested the very next day. Howard remembers that day like it was yesterday. He'd just been out with a friend talking about how great Madoff's investments were. When I got home, my wife told me that uh, I had about six telephone calls for people who I knew that wouldn't leave messages, that wanted to only speak to me directly. Then another friend called Howard. He told me that when he was on the JetBlue flight to Florida, he had seen on the television on the flight that Madoff had been arrested. Um... He said he was debating whether he should try to go up to the front of the plane and open the door and jump out. That's how I first found out. What did you think and how did you feel when he told you that? I thought my life was going to take a significant change um, at that moment. It felt like a punch in the gut. For Madoff, consequences came quickly. In 2009, he admitted to running the largest Ponzi scheme in history and pleaded guilty to 11 felonies. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison. But Jamie says Madoff was never as remorseful as some people wanted him to be. Did Bernie Madoff ever talk about what he had done? Probably the most memorable way he ever addressed this was when he seemed to 
mock the whole situation after his arrest. There's this, this very memorable time when he was passing reporters on the street towards his apartment building and kind of smiled. That was just like another form of insult to so many of his victims. He later told a judge he will live with this pain and torment. But then later than that, he told New York Magazine that he said everyone was greedy and people had warning signs. And so, you know, he did lay some blame on his investors, but he also said that he just went along with it and he said it's not an excuse. So I think people thought he should have been more contrite than he was, but really what is it to be contrite when you defraud so many people for so many years? How did what happened affect Madoff's wife and the rest of his family? It was devastating to his family. One of his sons died of disease The other son died of suicide, and now Mr. Madoff himself has died in jail. Many of the victims of the Ponzi scheme have spent the last decade trying to get their money back, or at least some of it. The court put a man named Irving Picard in charge of recovering money for victims. How were people even able to get their money back? Where did they get it from? So the way that Mr. Picard looked at the situation is that he saw that there were what he called net winners and net losers. And net winners of Mr. Madoff were the people who took out money before the fraud was exposed and got what their paper documents told them their money was worth. So if you had been getting this 8 to 12% for year after year and you took your money out, you got much more than you put in. But that came at the expense of someone else who didn't take their money out, and now their money wasn't left. Those were the net losers. So Mr. Picard set about trying to identify the net winners and try to reach out to them to claw back their money to pay back the net losers. So far, Picard has been able to return more than $14 billion out of the more than $17 billion that Madoff stole. But even though people have gotten some of their initial investment back, it's nowhere near what they thought their money was worth, since all those years of 8 to 12% returns were fake. Howard sued the firm through which he'd made his investments in Madoff's funds. He says he's recovered a lot of his money, but even now, 13 years later, there are still lawsuits. A Ponzi scheme is the worst kind of financial crime, because the people I was fighting against were innocent bystanders to this. They hadn't done anything wrong. They didn't know they were taking my money out of the fund, and they took money out. It's horror for the people who experienced it, and it's a certainly cautionary tale for the rest of us. Just not to be seduced (laughs) that there are these swindlers out there, even the ones who seem polished and seem legitimate. And just because... Other people are joining a club does not mean it's a good idea, especially when it comes to investing. I was well-educated. I was smart. I had a lot of experience by that time. And one is captured by the fact, well, if he's doing it, it must be an honest investment. And unfortunately, that's not a very good way to invest. A little over a year ago, Madoff was reported to have kidney failure and given 18 months to live. He died on Wednesday at a federal medical center in North Carolina.
When you heard that Madoff had died, how did you react? My only thoughts about it were that as long as they died penniless, I was uh, sufficient. Um, the reality is, I don't really feel that much um, in terms of the fact that he's now dead. You know, He's been dead to me for a long time. That's all for today, Friday, April 16th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to the many Wall Street Journal reporters who've covered this saga over the years, whose reporting we relied on for today's episode. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. The show's produced by Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Martin Kessler, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Enrique Perez, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rose Strasser, and Rob Zipko. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Peter Leonard, Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.